By the time my heart was sound enough to have children, to give them the parents they deserve, my ovaries had all but checked out. I decided to commit my life to other pursuits. Regret can coexist with joy. Don't politicize what is often a person's most personal choice. That was a tweet I posted a few weeks ago, and this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is your host, Joanne Molinaro. This week, we're going to talk about building families. I've been asked more times than is polite why I don't have children, so I thought I'd uncloak the mystery. We're also going to talk about the egg freezing process that I underwent for any of you who might be interested. So without further ado, let's get into it. A little over five years ago, I had one of the most beautiful dreams of my life. I was standing outside, I don't know where, staring out at the horizon. The sky was a bright, fiery orange. Silhouetted against the sunset was a family of dark mountains, huddled together as only a family would. I felt so comfortable. Night was on its way, and with it, the peace of sleep. All of a sudden, a small voice punctured the warm silence. When is daddy coming home? I looked down and at my knee was a little girl, a soft cloud of black hair, round eyes now burnished as they drank in the sunset. She looked like me. Well, when did this happen? I asked myself. But then I looked back up the sky peeling itself to reveal those quiet mountains and thinking of the man I loved, I answered, Daddy will be home before the sun hides behind those mountains. A few weeks ago, I came across the following on my Twitter feed by a one Shane Morris. Millennials who are very cavalier about not having children are in for a shock when they enter their 40s and realize life is only half over. What do they do at that point? Keep trying to be sexy and have fun? I expect to see a lot of sadness and confusion about what to do at that point. Mr. Morris gets a lot of things wrong, starting with the assumption that anyone other than himself would enjoy the irritatingly smug look on his profile pic. But he is right about millennials not having as many children as the generations that preceded them. According to the U.S. Census, the declining birth rate combined with international migration contributed to 2021 being the slowest rate of population growth in the United States since the founding of the nation. In fact, the U.S. birth rate has been in a steady decline since 1990, reaching a record low of 10.94% in 2020. Elon Musk has been obsessing over fertility rates, calling population collapse the biggest threat to civilization. According to an article that I'll include a link to in the show notes below, the five main reasons the U.S.'s birth rate is so low include higher opportunity costs for women. Even though most women work outside of the home in their partnerships now, the vast majority of women are still expected to be the primary caretaker for their children. 
as a result, more and more women are treating career and family building as either or things and choosing career over families, at least for now. Both men and women don't want to have children. Given everything that's going on in the world with gun violence and climate change, many young people are hitting the indefinite pause button on building families. Shifting gender norms are contributing to an erosion of existing power dynamics, i.e. women are no longer completely dependent on a man for money. Now, good or bad, what this is resulting in is a shift, I guess, in what people want in their partners. And as a result, many people are not finding that one person with whom they feel comfortable raising a family. Raising kids is more expensive than ever before. According to a report issued by Merrill Lynch, on average, it costs $230,000 to raise one child until they are 18 years old, compared to the $69,000 in 1980. Now, amazingly, this number does not include the cost of college, which I'm sure many of you who are parents can attest to. Shockingly, After their kids turn 18, parents spend twice as much on their adult children as they set aside for their own retirement. Infant mortality rates are down, which of course is a good thing. But ironically, parents don't need to have as many kids to, quote, hedge their bets, as horrible as that sounds. Similarly, families no longer need to hitch their wagon to a son in order to ensure survival, meaning they may well stop at having two kids instead of having as many as it takes to have a son, which is exactly what my grandparents did. They ended up with six children because they, quote, needed a boy. My maternal grandmother passed away when I was in my late 20s. In the years before her death, my entire family visited her at the nursing home every Saturday, and without fail, as soon as she would see me entering the small room she shared with her roommate, she would pad over to me, press her small hand on my abdomen, and ask me, when are you going to have babies? I'd take her hand in mine and smile before choosing one of the following answers. I already have babies. My dog's Daisy and Billy. It's too early to have babies. Maybe next year, Harmony. I'm too busy at work to have babies. Or my personal favorite, what did you eat for breakfast, Harmony? As some of you may know, I got married when I was 26 years old and subsequently got divorced several years later. Why didn't I have kids with my first husband? Well, the short answer is that I was with a man I didn't think would make the best father. Unfortunately, at the time I married him, I didn't want kids and never thought I would change my mind. I was laser beam focused on my career and had heard one too many times from my own mother how she regretted having children. In fact, I had given some serious thought to getting a hysterectomy before the wedding. Therefore, I didn't think it was a big deal that I was marrying a man whose temper made him ineligible to raise my children. Of course, to call this naive is a gross understatement. I almost never allowed myself to consider having children during my first marriage. I had my hands full making sure our marriage survived. The idea of adding to what was an already fragile family was simply unthinkable. I also knew that if my ex-husband ever treated a child of mine the same way he sometimes treated me, I could never forgive myself. Over the years, I knew I'd made a mistake. 
but I wasn't about to compound that mistake by making a child pay for it. It was this line of thinking that, in some ways, helped me pull the trigger and ultimately leave that relationship. If you don't feel safe enough with him to have kids, then you don't feel safe enough with him, period. I was still married, however, when I first felt a pang, a splintering regret at the choice I made so recklessly in my 20s. I was watching a movie called One Day starring Anne Hathaway, and spoiler alert, in it she marries her best friend, the man she's loved for most of her life. While performing her nightly skincare routine, she leans into her husband, her face a visage of unbridled joy and expensive moisturizer, and whispers, I want a child with the man I love. I was so wound up in their romance, I instantly understood something that had eluded me up until that point, the desire to create something unimaginably beautiful with the person you love. At the time, it was just a kernel of an idea, one that I didn't have the capacity to explore, but it planted itself in my heart, waiting for the day when it would be given enough space to take root. I met Anthony, my current husband, in 2014, shortly after my divorce was finalized. I knew very early on that Anthony was excellent father material, even before I fell in love with him. He loved his own father so much, and after meeting Robert, I could see why. They had the kind of relationship they make movies about, and I knew that if I were ever to have a son or daughter with Anthony, he would grow to be their best friend in exactly the same manner as his own father was to him. Letting myself daydream about having children was both frightening and exhilarating. After saying to myself, just don't think about it, for so many years, it was like walking around on legs that had fallen asleep. Letting them come back to life was painful and slow, but the prospect of running was tantalizing. I remember on a drive with Anthony one afternoon, I asked him if he'd ever thought about having kids. Of course, and I know exactly what I would name her. And with a theatrical flourish, he waved one free hand into the air like a magician while declaring, Magdalena Molinaro. Perhaps he was casting a spell. Because in that moment, I knew that if I was ever going to have a child, it would be Anthony's. Unfortunately, in your late 30s, you don't necessarily get to roll out of bed or roll into it and just get pregnant. In 2017, Anthony and I were still just dating, but I was 38 years old. Though I dropped hints the size of Texas, Anthony still wasn't getting on one knee and I wasn't about to have a child out of wedlock. Sorry, called me old-fashioned. After doing some research, I decided to freeze my eggs. I learned a lot of things during that due diligence period, including the following things I will now share with all of you. First, it's better to freeze your eggs when you are in your 20s, not your late 30s, because egg viability deteriorates as women age. You need to freeze about 10 eggs to have a reasonable chance at one birth. You need to give yourself shots for several days, sometimes up to two weeks. You cannot be physically active while giving yourself those shots, i.e., for me, no running. 
The shots are ridiculously expensive, like $1,000 each, and they're usually not covered by insurance. So the rich irony is, of course, you are supposed to get your eggs frozen in your 20s, which is likely the only time in your adult life you won't be able to afford the shots. After spending several hours on the phone with my insurance provider to determine precisely what parts of the procedure they would cover, for me it was the ultrasounds and the egg retrieval surgery, I made an appointment with a physician who had excellent internet reviews. She confirmed much of what I already knew by that time, that we should aim to retrieve at least 10 eggs in order to give me the best chance of getting pregnant with one of them in the future. After a brief consultation, she walked me to a small dark room next to her office and had me change into a gown. She rubbed a bunch of cold gel over my abdomen and performed an ultrasound. You have... I count 17 follicles, she stated confidently, assuming one egg for every follicle. That should give you more than enough eggs for one pregnancy. I let out a huge sigh of relief. Up until that moment, I hadn't realized just how nervous I was. I felt like the ultrasound, this whole appointment, was a test, as if I were being graded on my womanhood, however irrational that sounds. And although 17 follicles wasn't as good as 50 and A+, 17 follicles was still more than a passing grade, a solid C. As soon as I got into my car, I called Anthony from the clinic's parking lot. I have 17 follicles, I yelled triumphantly into the phone. Okay, I don't exactly know what that means, but congratulations, was Anthony's response. Although I was anxious to get the process underway, I had already signed up for the Chicago Marathon, which was my first, and I'd be running almost every day for the next few months. Thus, given all the warnings about how excessive physical activity during the two-week process could reduce your egg count, some even recommended complete bed rest during that time, I decided to wait until after the big race, which was set for October. That way, I could do all my training, run the marathon, and then kick my feet up for 14 days while I injected myself with hormones. I said as much to the doctor, and she agreed that this timing made sense and reassured me that waiting a few months would have a negligible impact on my eggs. After running past the finish line of my first marathon, I was ready to tackle my next big challenge. But after speaking with a colleague who was also preparing to freeze her eggs, I decided to make an appointment with a second clinic. While I certainly wanted the best that money could buy, I also wasn't above shopping around to make sure I wasn't spending more than I needed to, and I figured it wouldn't hurt to get a second opinion. I got an ultrasound before my appointment at the clinic's recommendation. I walked into the doctor's office with my phone out, thinking I would vlog the whole experience and then share it with my followers on Instagram. Seeing the somewhat puzzled expression on the doctor's face, I said, oh, I'm taking some footage for my Insta. Okay, she answered, a bit nonplussed. I assumed she was just nervous about having a camera in her face, so I asked her, would that be all right? No, no, it's, it's no problem, if that's what you want. She peered at me with that face again, her eyes a bit wider than they normally would be, her lips slightly parted, and I should have known then but I was too preoccupied with adjusting the focus on my phone. Hey guys, I'm here at the doctor's office to talk about egg freezing. So doctor, I finished my marathon and I'm ready to move forward. What's next? She looked down at the manila folder between her hands. Carefully, she flipped it open. 
She studied it for a few seconds before looking back up at me, then at my phone, then back at me. Well, here's the thing. It seems your follicle count is a lot lower than your last ultrasound. Okay, um, how, how many did you count? I asked, still holding my phone up while wondering if women could lose a follicle or two in a few months' time. Seven. Seven? Did you say seven? I lost ten follicles in the past few months? Yes. I've actually never seen anything like it. Are you sure the first count wasn't perhaps a mistake? I... no, I, I don't know. I mean, the doctor counted them right there in front of me. And then I started to cry. A lot. I put my phone down, and the doctor handed me a box of Kleenex. I went home and jumped onto the computer almost immediately because, of course, Google has the answer to every problem, including the inexplicable loss of 10 follicles. How do you lose follicles? Can you regrow follicles? Can I get pregnant with only seven follicles? As the world grew dim, the street lamp outside our condo flickered to life, casting a lurid glow across my computer monitor. I was deep within the bowels of a Reddit thread when I saw something that struck a gong inside my head. Strenuous physical activity, like long distance running, can damage or reduce the number of ovarian follicles. Strenuous physical activity. Long distance running. I stared at the blue lit reflection of my pale face plastered with the crawling font of Reddit posts. So this is my fault. I muttered to no one in particular. That night, in bed, I whispered, I'm sorry, to Anthony. I'm sorry I wasn't more careful with my body. He pulled me into his arms then, in a rare display of tenderness. I'm sorry I married the wrong man. I'm sorry I wasted my body with the wrong man. I'm sorry I didn't know running the marathon would destroy my follicles. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Until then, I'd been so confident about my choices, even the bad ones. Mistakes were a part of life, I always said, and therefore regret had no place in mine. Even the wrong decisions were stepping stones to where I was on my journey, and finding Anthony was the best thing I ever did. How could I possibly regret anything that led me to him? But for the first time ever, I looked back and found fault in what felt like every decision I'd ever made, but especially the one that had led me down the aisle the first time around. How could I have been so stupid, so short-sighted to marry someone I knew even then could never grow to be the kind of man with whom I'd feel comfortable having children? What if I'd left him earlier, met Anthony earlier? What if instead of being an unmarried woman with only seven follicles sobbing into her boyfriend's arms, Anthony and I were already married with two healthy, beautiful children, Magdalena, Maggie, and Roberto, Robert? Anthony held me tightly, repeating, You don't have to be sorry. Don't be ridiculous. This isn't your fault. 
until the tears dried up and all I had left was the shriveled up emptiness of regret. After a couple weeks of self-flagellation, I decided to go through with the procedure anyway. I'd already had my mind set on it, and what was the worst that could happen? My fertility was declining rapidly, and I wanted to retrieve whatever good eggs I could while I still had them. Starting on November 19th, I had to give myself multiple injections a day while going in for ultrasounds every other day. The hormone injections were designed to get my ovaries to produce as many eggs as possible while I remained relatively inactive to ensure they stayed attached to my seven follicles until they were collected. I know what you're thinking. Do the shots hurt? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The self-injection thing is not fun. I had to take two shots a day, and one of them came with a fairly long needle and syringe. It thus took a few seconds to unload the entire dosage. On the final day, in order to prime your body for retrieval, you have to give yourself an intramuscular shot. The others were subcutaneous, meaning they didn't have to go very deep. For that one, I watched several YouTube tutorials and iced the injection site in advance. It turned out to be the least painful of them all. The egg retrieval surgery was easy, at least for me. I was supposedly under twilight sedation only, but I completely conked out and don't remember a thing about the procedure, thank God. One minute, I was counting backwards, and the next minute, I woke up to the sound of another woman in the curtained-off room across from mine. She was chatting with the doctor about her retrieval. We were able to collect 23 eggs, the doctor advised her. She was clearly quite pleased with herself, and so was her patient, who, though groggy, still managed to utter, Oh, that's so great. After what felt like an interminable period of time, the doctor pulled back the light blue curtain and let herself into my room. She still had her surgical cap on, her mask dangling precariously from one ear around her chin. I smiled politely, even as I felt my heart suddenly trying to beat itself out of my chest. How are you feeling? she asked. I'm fine, thanks. How'd the surgery go? I didn't see the point of beating around the bush. She didn't answer immediately, though. Instead, she stepped back until she was leaning her shoulders against the wall, she crossed her arms as if bracing herself before she said, We were only able to get three. Oh, I felt my lips come together gently as if holding a bubble inside my mouth. Oh, is it worth trying again? I asked, mostly just to fill the silence. She shrugged her shoulders. Looking at the blue curtain she'd just walked through minutes earlier, I got the distinct impression that she was disappointed in me, like I'd ditched a class or got caught with cigarettes in my locker. I mean, sure, you can try, but... She shrugged once more. She didn't have to say anything more. One afternoon in the spring of 2019, about nine months after we got married, we took Rudy out for a long walk to the dog park. On our way there, I asked Anthony whether he wanted to try getting pregnant with one of the three eggs. 
I had just run a half marathon and planned on spending most of the summer recovering from a very bad case of chronic shin splints. I thought, now's as good a time as any to try turning one of those eggs into a human. Surprisingly, the same man who so readily unfurled Magdalena Molinaro with such enthusiasm was pretty lukewarm about attaching the name to an actual person. I don't know, babe. You just signed your book deal. Do you really want to stress out about getting pregnant while writing your first book? He had a good point, but I had another. Okay, but you need to know, the window is closing rapidly. If we don't do this now, we may not ever get a chance to do this again. He nodded. Yeah, I get that. We watched Rudel's snuffle along the chain-link fence enclosing the park. I thought to myself, there are some decisions in life you don't get back. I've loved the men I've loved, and I must now accept the good and the bad that flow from those choices. As I stood there rooted to the pebbled floor of the dog park, I knew that if I accepted Anthony's tepid response to the idea of having children as dispositive, we would likely never have biological children of our own. That the remarkable dream I'd had in 2017 of the young girl watching the sunset with me would remain just that, a dream. The book was a good excuse, but more importantly, it was in many ways the perfect metaphor for the life I might have to put on the shelf if I decided to pour resources into not just being a parent, but getting pregnant in the first place. I'd heard enough horror stories from women my age or even younger who spent thousands and thousands of dollars, underwent excruciating heartbreak and disappointment, and even jeopardized their marriages in pursuit of pregnancies. I'd been exposed to just a hint of what lay before me, and I knew enough about myself to predict that the self-recrimination I administered when my follicles disappeared would reappear if the probable scenario played out. But the devil's advocate in me piped up in my head with, but so-and-so is 42 and she had her first baby. And don't you remember such-and-such such got Prager's the old-fashioned way after failing three IVF cycles? These questions forced me to confront something I'd been avoiding. What do you want? The truth was, I didn't really know. There was, and is, some part of me that really wanted to set out on the adventure of parenthood with Anthony by my side. I could see so vividly what he would be like in the delivery room, holding my hand and coaching me through labor in the same way he sometimes runs with me during portions of a marathon. I wanted this so sharply, so badly, and wondered whether it was worth bringing a human into the world simply to experience that singularly extraordinary union with your partner. When I heard colleagues or friends reminisce over the struggles of parenting, I envied them. To me, it sounded exciting and fun. The kind of thing I could be really good at because, you know what, I'm a problem solver. And in some ways, parenting was just an endless series of problems. But I also knew that most of my friends, like most parents, shared their experiences from the luxury of hindsight and as an unconscious act of confirmation bias, often did so with the romantic sheen of nostalgia. I weighed these stories against the hard truths of motherhood I witnessed in my own amma. The regret that was so immense she couldn't contain it even from her own daughter. It was unpleasant, but it was honest. 
And yet, I felt like I was obligated to have children, that I owed it to everyone, even Elon Musk, to procreate, that I was somehow less of a woman and deserving of implicit devaluation and criticism if I decided to remain childless. The instinct to assent to my role as childbearer remained as powerful as it did. Every single time I'd look into my grandmother's eyes, see the disappointment, even the incredulity painting itself across her face when I couldn't give to her the one thing she wanted from me more than anything in the world. I wish there was a concise, logical, coherent answer to why I presently do not have children. But I won't manufacture one merely to provide a satisfying conclusion to this particular story. The facts remain that emotionally and practically I waited until I thought it was safe to have children, but by that time, biologically, I'd waited a bit too long. That I continued to harbor regret over some of the earlier decisions in my life. That this regret threatens to spill over into self-pity and loathing when I let my guard down. That part of me wants children still and leaves the door open for adoption, fostering, or even an IVF cycle or three with those precious eggs. That another part of me is relieved I don't have children. That I can travel with Anthony as frequently as my job requires, pour all my resources into reaching into millions of hearts a day, save enough of myself to remind as many people as will listen that a person's choice to procreate can be a profoundly complicated one and an unreliable metric of worth. So on that afternoon walk, with the undisputed loves of my life, when Anthony said, yeah, I get that, I walked over to the chain link fence to retrieve my rudels, clipped the leash onto his collar, and signaled to Anthony that we should get back home with a nod of my head. And left it at that. Every week, I invite listeners and subscribers to the newsletter to submit questions to, quote, Ask Joanne. This gives them a chance to hear some unfiltered and objective advice on whatever issue that's bothering them at the moment. This week, Takeo has said, I'm turning 14 on September 10th, and it's very surreal to me. It feels like life is hurtling by, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. I feel so overwhelmed with school, home, friends... And it just feels like I never get a moment to myself. I wanted to ask you, what can I do to stay in the moment? How do I make sure I don't lose these years that are supposed to be so important? Well, Takeo, happy belated birthday. We got to get that one out of the way. Congratulations on making it to 14. And I totally empathize with your feelings. No matter how old you are, life can seem uncooperative. It often runs ahead of us or annoyingly lags behind us, right? Rare is the day indeed when it feels like life is jogging right next to you, not asking you to slow down or go faster. Speaking of running, I'd like to highlight something you said. I never get a moment to myself. I feel this so hard as well. It is one of the biggest reasons I love to run. It's the only time I get to be as alone as I sometimes need. 
Whether you're an introvert like me or an out-and-out extrovert like my husband, there is something incredibly healing in solitude. As you imply, a moment to yourself can help to recharge your batteries, organize your thoughts, plan your days, and even unsnarl seemingly untangleable issues. I'm always amazed at how many life problems I've solved after a good long run. I say all this to encourage you to start running. (laughs) Of course. Now, whether it's running or cooking or golfing, cycling, swimming, yoga, or meditation, I think it is important to try incorporating some activity into your day-to-day that challenges you to be alone with yourself. Because here's the thing, Taiko, as much as we like to complain that we don't have moments to ourselves, the truth is being alone with ourselves requires commitment. It requires you to make some tough choices. Do I go out with my friends or do I stay in and go out for a run instead? Do I join seven after-school clubs or knock it down to six to make room for baking? I realize these sound simple when said out loud, but in daily practice, you'd be surprised how easily we fold to the path of least resistance or the expectations of those around us. One of the best gifts I've ever received from my mom was a diary when I was only 10 years old. It was so pretty. It had a picture of this little girl, a fairy, and it came with one of those locks, you know, with a key, but of course it broke in a couple days. Because it was so beautiful, and because I knew my mom also wrote in diaries and I wanted to be just like my mom, I filled those lined pages with stories of triumph and heartbreak, love and disappointment, resentment and fear, grief and joy. Within a few weeks, a habit had been formed. And I gotta tell you, I've been writing in journals for over three decades. Now, I don't want to downplay the importance of living life outside the pages of a diary, but there aren't words to describe how I feel every single time I read the words of 10-year-old, 14-year-old, 26-year-old, 37-year-old Joanne. These Joannes continue to teach me today at the ripe age of 42. Too often, We emphasize the value of external experiences, meeting new people, traveling, trying out for the school play or the football team, etc., while forgetting the importance of examining what all of this means to you. This leads to anxiety, which leads to burnout, which leads to unhealthy levels of isolation and despair. However tempting it is to think only of the expectations around you, A little introspection is necessary to identify and live up to the expectations that lie inside you. This way, no matter how the future unfolds, you will guard against FOMO by ensuring that every step you take was one that you intended to take. But mostly, Teiko, the fact that you're even pondering these things Even asking me this question makes me pretty confident that you're the type of person that won't ever let life pass them by. Wishing you all the best. Thanks, Taiko, for submitting your question. If you have a question on which you want some objective advice and don't mind hearing from me about it, make sure to check out the show notes below and submit your question today. 
All right, it's time for updates and random things. First major update regards the Urbana Champagne event that I was scheduled to do later this month. Sadly, the event will no longer be going forward this month. The university reached out to me and they would like to reschedule for April of next year. If you've already purchased your tickets, please reach out directly to the ticketing agent for further details. What I'm watching, which is honestly my favorite part of the podcast, well, in addition to re-watching One Day, which was just as good as I remembered, I highly recommend it, and reluctantly following the US Open while my dad was in town, he literally watched nothing else, I started watching a show called Westworld, a dystopian tale about a metaverse-like wild, wild west that users can visit to live out their frontier fantasies. It's cleverly prescient, but to be honest, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm only in episode three. I love a good sci-fi, but this one, I don't know. It seems a little bit too dark for me. If you have watched Westworld and feel strongly one way or another about it, I'd love to hear from you to see if you think I should continue to commit my time to this one because man, it, it looks like a commitment. <laughs> what I'm listening to. In case you missed it, I had the chance to speak with Ivana Lynch, a longtime vegan advocate. You may remember her as Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter movies and Dr. Melanie Joy in their Just Beings podcast. I had a huge blast talking to them about a number of different things, including fangirling over Ivana. I will include a link to that in the show notes below. Another really cool announcement, I will be at the Mercy for Animals Gala this Friday. I'm really looking forward to that. And good news, even if you can't attend in person because maybe you don't live in or around the LA area, you can stream the entire event. I will include a link to that in the show notes below. I'm super excited, mostly to hang out with a bunch of vegan celebrities and totally be like fangirling over them. Next is your weekly reminder that I have a meal planner. Yes, all of the recipes that you see on my TikToks, on my YouTubes, or on my Instagram, or even the ones that I mention here and there, you can find those on the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. You can download the app onto your phone and you will have instant access to thousands and thousands of recipes that I am adding to every single week for what it costs to have a latte per week. This week, I added the corn ribs, the potato corn salad from last week's newsletter, baked fries, and pesto egg in a whole toast. Again, if you want access to these recipes and thousands more, check out the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. And now for this week's Parting Thoughts. In 2014, I walked back to my apartment with a sheaf of papers and my fist from the daily center. Signed, notarized, and file stamped, I slid them into a manila envelope containing the important documents, my marriage certificate, mortgage, tax returns, and now my divorce decree. That afternoon, my sister-in-law and I headed to Tiffany. Together, we oohed and awed over things I'd never be able to afford, and in the end, selected a rather demure necklace and ring. When the clerk, a woman in her early 60s with long, elegant fingers I instantly admired, asked, What's the occasion, ladies? I answered, My divorce day. 
She pursed her lips into a conspiratorial grin, and without even looking up from the perfect white bow she was crafting over my robin's egg blue box, answered, Ah, yes, I did the same for my D-Day. A week later, I was confiding to my therapist through thick, ugly tears, I'm scared. I'm scared I will never love any other man the way I loved him. And she said this, Joanne, that's a good thing. Fast forward a few years to 2017 in a small studio apartment in Tribeca. Anthony and I are in New York, having just hosted a bunch of friends for a dinner party. The last of the dishes washed, it's time to brush my teeth and go to bed. I step out of the bathroom and Anthony is videotaping our Airbnb. What are you doing? I ask. I'm documenting our night in New York, he replies. I turn off the lights in the kitchen, and though it's nearly three in the morning, I pull out my laptop and declare, I need to write. I slide into bed next to him, open my journal, and I browse through all my old entries, rifling through all the barely discernible moments that led up to this very night, this very second with Anthony. Going to law school in Chicago to be near my college sweetheart, marrying my college sweetheart, reading a book called Twilight, buying a camera, writing my very first poem on Tumblr, walking out of my first home and leaving my first husband, renting an apartment in the city and asking my brother to move in with me because I was afraid of the dark, letting his wife, my sister-in-law, badger me into going out on dates for the first time in my life, signing up for OkCupid, checking out the profile of a pianist who described himself as miles ahead. I think, too, of all the hard points knots along a thick rope braided together by all my choices of how often I tried to untie them only to give up because sometimes trying to undo old wounds hurts more than simply living with them. I start to write these things down in my journal and Anthony, trying to read over my shoulder, uncharacteristically demands, I want to know what you're writing about. Why is it so important that you have to stay up at this hour and write it down? After just a little more prodding, I tell him about the unclean feeling that used to drown me with every other man I'd ever loved, about how I never felt it with him, how astonishing this is to me, and how grateful I am to be able to share quiet mornings with him. And then, I give to him the words I swallowed earlier that day, the ones I was too embarrassed to say out loud as he held me in bed. The words I wanted to write down at three in the morning before they disappeared on the other side of sleep. You are worth every unhappiness in my entire life. A few moments later, he asked me to be his wife. I said yes. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button, leave a comment and a rating below. And if there was something in particular you found inspiring about this episode, you can share it with your friends, your colleagues, your family, your loved ones, or even on social media. All of those shares mean so very much to me. In the meantime, until next week, 
Have a lovely and wonderful day. 